I expected that. I know, it's early. It's an hour earlier. Let's try it again. Good morning. Good morning. Much better. Much better. Uh, I know, it's early. I got up, set my alarm for 6.30 to go over my sermon one last time, but my body felt like it was about 4.30. So, only it was an hour. So, if you need to stand up, do some Zumba, get some energy going. I don't know if that's what they do in Zumba. I apologize. <laughs> anybody who does Zumba or is a Zumba instructor, I just totally messed that up. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 25 today. Uh, we've been in a series on 1 Peter, so this is our fourth Sunday. We've got about six more weeks to go, uh, actually a little longer than that because we'll do Easter in there, but um, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, hopefully one, as a reminder, we did uh, Lent last Sunday, for those of you who wanted to do it. Uh, it's not required, but um, we, for the first time as a church, did Lent, which has been done a lot through the, the generations of Christendom. So um, hopefully it's going well. I chose to give up uh, using my cell phone, kind of at little like four or five minute dead increments, right? So if I take the dog out to go to the bathroom and often, you know, look and read something senseless, right? Like, oh... LeBron James had tacos for dinner, or, you know, Shawn Mendes broke up with his girlfriend. I don't care. I don't know why, right? Or, uh, so just, you know, you get these little pockets of dead time in your day, right, where you're you're looking at your phone, and uh, so I thought, I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to try to pray during those times. And so, first couple days, awesome. I was praying for a lot more people than I was, not looking at my phone. My mind was more clear, was able to think more linearly. Uh, last few days have been a little tougher because I really want to pull it out and look at it. And um, I haven't, but sometimes the wrestle of wanting to do that has led to no prayer, even though I didn't look at, the, at my phone. So, Lord willing, it's a work of sanctification. So I hope uh, whatever you decide to do for Lent, that God's using it in your heart. Uh, my kids were going to give up sugar, and that was a little too extreme. So about a day later, they backed off to just chocolate. And then one of them got chocolate at school, and then... They were wanting to back off that, so it's uh, it's a work in progress, um, definitely a work in progress for all of us. So, Anyway, but I hope you've been encouraged to kind of push into Jesus with whatever you decided to refrain from for 40 days. So uh, I'm going to read, we are going to go through 1 Peter 13 through 25, I'm going to read 16 and 17 and then pray. So uh, if you'll go there, 1 Peter 2, 16 says this, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can come together, that we can read your word. I thank you, Father, that we do not have to figure life out on our own, that we don't have to create a rescue plan or a salvation plan. I thank you, Father, for common graces. I thank you that I took a warm shower this morning. I thank you, Father, that um, that there are people who are thinking about how to help our medical care, even, even people who may not acknowledge or bless you, Lord, that you are still working your plans and your purposes. I thank you that our hope is not in structures of government or political leaders. I thank you, Lord, that our hope is in you. And I thank you that you are perfect. Thank you that you're a blessing, God, that you want to give good things to your children. 
And I thank you most of all for your grace, Lord, that you don't call wrong things right, but that you provided a way where we could not. Lord, that you brought grace into our dead hearts and you breathed life into us and you made us your children. So I pray this morning that we'll leave here feeling encouraged, that we'll leave here feeling edified, that we'll leave here ready to love. In your name, amen. So, as I mentioned, this is our fourth sermon in the book of Peter, and Peter's given some instruction leading up to this text. In fact, he's given a lot of instruction leading up to this text, um, reminding us that we are uh, foreigners, that we're exiles here on earth, that this is not our home, that we have a home that we're looking toward. Um, Pastor Sean did a great job last week reminding us that um, he is the one who creates holiness out of us. It's not us. We long, he creates the longing for himself, and then through that longing, he brings about holiness, and he brings about righteousness. And he took people who were nothing. He took us who were not chosen, who were not royalty, and he chose us, and he made us a people. He made us a royal people, a priesthood for his own possession. And so we've had a lot of good reminders, and Peter's about to give us a lot of instruction here. But it's helpful to remember these reminders. Um, my dad, for a couple years, maybe three years when I was in middle school, early high school, did some business in Mexico. I grew up in Texas, and uh, he did some ex- business in Mexico. And I went one time with him on a business trip to uh, Monterrey, which is about four hours into Mexico. So it's not a border town. Uh, It's in northern Mexico, and it's a pretty big city. At the time, then, I think it was around 4 million people. It's probably bigger than that now. And uh, I remember being there, and I was fascinated. I think I was 14 or 15. I was fascinated uh, by just the culture and being there. But I was also a little uneasy because I did not speak Spanish, and I did not know the customs. And I remember one time we were uh, at dinner with some people that he um, did business with, and they kind of ordered, because um, even, even little things that are humbling. I remember being uh, trying to order breakfast and not even really being able to communicate what I wanted other than Hugo de Naranja, which is orange juice. Uh, and so uh, I was not able to order a lot of sophisticated things. And so you're trying to kind of piecemeal your Spanglish, what you think something is, and point. And uh, it's a little uneasy. It's a little unnerving when you're in a society where you don't know the, the norms. I remember we were at dinner. And they kind of ordered, uh, and this huge plate of food came. And um, I, I looked at my dad, and I was like, if I, can, if, if I have to eat all this to avoid offending them, we're, we're about to offend some people because there's no way I can eat all this food. So I just felt a little uneasy. It was a good reminder that uh, we should feel a little uneasy because this is not our native land, that we are, we're going to be in eternity with Christ. Uh, and he's about to tell us, Peter's about to tell us how to interact with people in the world, uh, and specifically authorities in the world, even if they're hostile to us. So um, as an outline for today, I want to give a a brief background on the Roman Empire, and then I want to go through the text. Um, So in verses 13 through 17, we'll see that uh, we're servants of God, and we're truly free, so we're free to obey authorities and honor others. Um, And then in verses 18 to 20, Peter's going to tell us suffering will come. It's going to come. And then in verses 21 to 24, he's going to tell us, he's going to appeal to Christ. He's going to say Christ's suffering 
is not wasted and it will lead to glory. So that ensures our suffering will not be wasted. And then in verse 25, he's going to remind us that we have a good shepherd, that we have the chief shepherd who's watching over our souls, who's caring for us. So, so that's where we're going today. Um, and so I want to start with the Roman Empire. Uh, as God would have it in his sovereignty, Evie, my youngest, who's in third grade, uh, they just finished a whole unit on Rome. And uh, one of the nice things about having kids is um, they go to school and you get a second run through it which is really helpful. Uh, you don't realize how much you didn't learn or ignored or forgot on the first run. So, in fact, three or four runs probably wouldn't be a bad idea for me. But uh, they just finished a unit, on Ro- a unit on Rome, and I was helping her study for, this, um, for a test on Rome, and it was crazy to me how dysfunctional the leadership of Rome was. So, again, Rome was this vast empire. It ruled about a 1,000 years. So, uh, in the early... Um, kind of, you know, 4, 500, 600 BC through kind of past 4, 500 AD. So this this huge empire that ruled for a long time. Uh, to give you an idea, the United States in 2027 will be 250 years old. So, you know, it's more than four times as long. Um, coincidentally, 2027, I'll be 50 years old, uh, not 250. So um, seven years to think about what to get me for my birthday until then. Um <laughs> Gifts under $100 are frowned upon, just so you know. But um, anyway, all right, so, uh, and not only was Rome ruled for a long time, but it was huge. It conquered pretty much all of Western Europe, the North, uh, uh, North African continent, the Middle East, Greece, and the Balkans. So it was this huge empire. And at its peak, about one in four people in the world lived under Roman authority. To give you an example, today in the U.S., about one in Five, uh, sorry, one in 22 people in the world live in the U.S. So we're, you know, very small compared to the rest of the world. So this was a huge empire, and as such, the leaders of Rome, because it was so big, ruled so many people, lasted for so long, the, ru- the rulers of Rome, Rome wielded this enormous power. And so you would think, oh, they probably had a really good system of government and were ruled by people who really had their stuff together. Absolutely the opposite. No, not, at, not, not even close. So to give you an example, we'll start with Julius Caesar, who probably most of you have heard of. Um, so he was the leader of Rome in 44 BC. So a little before uh, Christ is born and comes into the world. 44 BC, some of the other people in Rome feel like Julius Caesar is getting too much power. And they don't like it. So one day, March 14th, 44 BC, he walks into the Roman Senate to give a speech, and he's seized by the neck and stabbed 23 times uh, by different senators. And two of the ones who are leading this are his close friends, Cassius and Brutus. And so um, our political situation today is not ideal. It's not perfect. But thankfully, people are not walking into the Senate and getting yanked by the neck and stabbed uh, yet. Hopefully, we don't get to that, right? Um, so then after he dies, there's a, a vacuum of power. And so there's two main guys that are trying to get power to become the next emperor. You have Octavian, who eventually becomes Caesar Augustus, and you have Mark Antony. And there was a, a lady, a ruler from Egypt, Cleopatra, who had fallen in love with Julius Caesar. And when he died she ends up falling in love with Mark Antony. And so you have kind of Team Antony and Team Octavian 
fighting each other to see who's going to rule Rome. Well, Team Octavian wins, and so Mark Antony is concerned about what's going to happen to him and being captured, so he decides to commit suicide. Well, Cleopatra has now aligned herself and fallen in love with two leaders who have not ended very well, so she decides to commit suicide. And then after Octavian rules, you have Calugula, who comes on the scene, probably not as well known, and he was a terrible leader. He killed anybody he wanted to, any reason he wanted to, any time he wanted to, and he got so deluded in his thinking that he thought he was the god Jupiter. And his own guards, whose sole job is to protect him, got so fed up with him, they killed him. Okay? So you're going to notice the theme here, and, and I hate to be spoiler, but uh, we'll move on to the next one, who was Nero. Now, Nero was most likely the Caesar at the time that First Peter is written. So just keep in mind, in case you're thinking, Peter uh, is writing what he's about to write to people who lived under a benevolent government or a government who favored Christians. Uh, Christians were viewed very low in society, and they were blamed for a lot of things, um, kind of as outcasts. In fact, Nero was the first Caesar to systematically target and persecute Christians. So Peter's most likely writing what he's about to write about obeying authority while living under a Caesar who hates Christians. And so Nero, uh, his mother wanted him to be Caesar so bad that she poisoned his father to kill him. So they obviously needed some marriage counseling. Things were not going well for them. So then Nero becomes Caesar, and you think he's eternally grateful to his mother. No, he tries to kill her three times. So he even constructs, basically has a room, a bedroom built for her with a with a false ceiling that's supposed to fall in on her and kill her. Well, that didn't end up working, so he tries another way. That doesn't end up working, so finally he orders his guards to stab her so they kill her. And then he becomes, he's a terrible person, and people hate him. The people ruling him, hating him hate him so bad that he can tell his power slipping away, and he's worried about what's going to happen to him. Guess what he does? <laughs> Commits suicide, Okay. Now, there's a lot of other stories we could share, but for sake of time, uh, I just want you to get an idea. This is all within a hundred years of kind of before Christ, after Christ, okay? Um, so this is, not, this is not even stories spread out over the whole thousand years. So this is the environment into which Peter is about to give us some instruction. So don't think that the Roman Empire was a benevolent government or that it was run by people who... Um, really had other, everyone, everyone else's best interests in mind. It was, a, it was a government that was dysfunctional. It was maniacal. It was ruthless. They would round up people uh, and, and have them killed sometimes or enslaved. Uh, and it was heathen. It was a godless government. It was, it was a pagan government. It was not a government. It was not a theocracy by any means. And Peter saw suffering at the hands of this Roman government throughout his life. He saw it with Christ, and church history tells us that he was even martyred, that he was even killed because of his belief in Jesus. So as we launch into Peter's instruction, I thought it was helpful to have that backdrop so we know kind of what we're walking into. So let's pick it up in verse 13. This is what he says. Be subject, to, be subject for the Lord's sake to every institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors I sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So we're to obey our authorities even if they're against God. Peter is exhorting us to obey and honor authority. And in verse 16 is really the key because it says, live as people who are free. We are free because of our status in Christ. We are free because we are servants of God. Because we're servants of God, we're free to live in such a way as to know that our hope is sealed, that our end will be eternal rejoicing and glory and enjoying God the Father. This is why we're free. You have to be, as humans, we are created to be worshipers of something. And so either you're a servant, you're a worshiper of sin that leads to death, or you're a servant of God, which leads to hope and life and peace. And we're going through a book with our kids that really helps um, about the Bible, that really helped me. I had an example in there uh, about brushing your teeth, which is why if you see the word toothbrush and you're confused, I'm about to explain it. So it's not working back there, so I didn't know if it was up here. So, okay. So in this book, it basically says you have two options when it comes to your teeth. You can be a servant of your toothbrush, which means you brush your teeth twice a day, every day, or you can be a servant to cavities, which means you reject brushing your teeth and they rot and fall out. So if you think about it, you don't have a lot of, there aren't a lot of in-between options at this point. So brushing your teeth, it takes time, right? You do it twice a day. So you're probably talking, I don't know, by the time you do it all, five to seven minutes total in the day. It's messy. Sometimes you have to watch other people brushing their teeth and, you know, it's messy, it's foaming, or you drop toothbrush, toothpaste on your shirt. If you're about to go to work, then you have to change your shirt. So you make a lot of arguments as to why you should not brush your teeth. However, your only other option is to not brush your teeth and wait for your teeth to systematically rot and fall out. And then your mouth, have you ever seen those pictures of old people where the mouth is all turned in because there's no teeth to keep it out, right? Like Travis's grandpa. So if you, that was a joke. I don't know what Travis's grandpa looked like. Uh, so you really don't have a lot of other options. And we like to think of ourselves as autonomous, especially in the, in the West and in the U.S. We like to think of ourselves as independent, as autonomous, as, as I I live for me, or I get to make my own decisions, but it's not true. It's either we are rejecting God, and we are choosing sin, and we are leading ourselves to an eternal death, or we are servants of God, and we are free in Christ to follow God and to bring him glory and to enjoy eternity without the curse of sin, enjoying him forever. And so Peter's reminding us the reason that we can live as free people, regardless of our status in society, because again, this is at a time where Christians occupied a low status in society, and that could come again. Um, and so he's saying, regardless, you're free. You're free in Christ, and you can, do, you can do what God has called you to do. And he goes on in verse 17 to remind us, what are we called to do? Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, or live in awe of God, live in reverence of God. Have your heart so transformed by God that you, you want what he desires. And honor the emperor. And so, um, again, he reminds us, uh, the, the New Testament reminds us that we're created in God's image and we're made to bring him glory. 
This is why when he says, honor everyone, um, he's reminding us that everyone is an image bearer. Even those who reject God, even those who don't believe in God, even those who curse God are still deserve a certain amount of love and respect and um, dignity because they're an image bearer of God. They're created in his image. And then he tells us to love the brotherhood. And so we're free to follow Christ, and he's left us some tangible examples to help us with that. He's left us his word, and he's left us each other. He's left us the local church. He's left us um, brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us and to let us spur each other on. We're not meant to pursue God in isolation. We're meant to pursue God in community, in family. And um, then he tells us, fear God, honor the emperor. And that leads to us having to follow um, the authority structures in our life. And that leads us to following, having to deal with, grapple with, how do we follow human laws? And so there, as I was thinking through this, there's really kind of three categories that laws fall into. I think there's easy laws, there's hard laws, and then there's wrong laws. As you think about um, easy laws, uh, an example I thought of would be seatbelts. So we know from reading the Bible that people are created in God's image. They have, and because of that reason, they have inherent value, they have inherent worth. And so we should desire to preserve lives. We should desire to preserve people from harm, from death, from injury. And so um, we have laws. I didn't look this up, but I think all 50 states have laws where you have to wear a seatbelt. And so that's a law we can easily buckle up and we can follow man's law, human law. We can follow God's law. Everybody wins, right? Um, Other laws are not as easy. So uh, paying taxes is an example of a law that's not as easy to follow because um, our government is very big. Uh, It's $4 trillion budget, and I am required, as somebody who earns income, to pay taxes on the income that I earn. And unfortunately, I don't get to designate where the money goes. And there are certainly some things in the $4 trillion budget that I would prefer my money not go to or not be funded, right? But the New Testament makes it clear that um, we are to obey our authority and we're to pay taxes. This is what Paul says in uh, Romans 13, 6 through 7. He says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. Remember, Paul is on the wrong end of Roman authority a lot in his life. He spent some time in prison, he spent some time in jail, and he calls these people ministers of God. For this, for because of this, you pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, meaning God is sovereignly orchestrating his plan. There's nothing outside of what's happening. <clears throat> They're ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes is owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Who is honor owed? Peter tells us, honor everyone. And so Jesus even had a couple run-ins with the religious leaders over taxes. They weren't really so concerned about his view on taxes. They were more trying to trap him and catch him so that they could either get him in trouble with God's law or get him in trouble with Caesar. Um, and Jesus is pretty clear. He says in Mark 12, 13 through 16, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, i.e. taxes, and render to God's the things that are God's. So this example of taxes is really helpful for me because you can make some pretty strong arguments about why maybe you shouldn't pay taxes. 
because those who are leading the government, uh, a lot of them are godless, or a lot of our laws um, support things that are not honoring to God's kingdom. But the New Testament makes it pretty clear that we live under a cursed society. We live under the curse of sin. We are not perfect. The people leading us are not perfect. The world with its philosophies will have a lot of contradictions. It will not be able to be fully consistent. And yet through all that, God is sovereignly working his plan and we're, we're called to pay taxes. But there is a third category of laws where um, they're, they're in direct opposition of God. And those are laws where we have to fear God more than we honor the emperor. And um, one of the most uh, recent examples is uh, World War II. So a lot of people, specifically Jewish people, were systematically targeted to be killed um, during World War II. And so there were people like Corey ten Boom who were um, seeking to shelter Jewish people to preserve their lives. And so she was a believer. She spent much of the war after the Netherlands were, were taken over by Germany. She spent much of her time and her family spent much of their time trying to shelter Jewish people and then help them provide passage to countries where they could be safe, like England and the United States. And so she was circumventing the laws of Germany that were ruling her, but this was right and this was good for her to do that because those laws were unjust and they were seeking to kill people and demean people and take value away from people who were created in God's image. So we shouldn't condemn her. We also shouldn't condemn people like William Wilberforce who worked tirelessly in England to end the slave trade there. Uh, we shouldn't condemn people in the New Testament who hid Paul when people were trying to take his life and they wanted to preserve him and get him to safety. Uh, we shouldn't condemn people today who peacefully and prayerfully seek to end legal abortion in the United States. My wife is on the board of a nonprofit called Justice Matters. And what they do is they provide legal services and advocacy to survivors of human trafficking. And so uh, a lot of the people that they help have endured um, horrific things, stories that will wrench your soul. Um, but they work to try to help get these people established, to get them free and to, to allow them to be able to, to function separate from those who are oppressing them. And they also work a lot to educate police and first responders to try to recognize the signs of human trafficking so that they can, so that they can help intervene. Uh, and they also work a lot with people who are vulnerable. So a lot of times kids in the foster system can become vulnerable to trafficking because they don't have an adult or they don't have a family member to advocate for them or help protect them. And so these are absolutely things, when we see uh, egregious exploitation of people, these are things that we should pray and be led by the Holy Spirit and how to help. So just to be clear, trafficking is not legal in the United States. So not all, all things that we're called to work to, for justice and mercy are, are uh, going to be illegal. But um, sometimes things are. And many times throughout human history, there have been laws that have, that have sought to exclude one group or another or to oppress one group or another. And those are things that we should work to fear God above, um, above just honoring the law blindly. And Karen Jobes in her commentary on this section of Peter has a really good summary, and I just wanted to read it because I thought it really kind of puts everything together. Um, this is what she says. Peter here begins to specify how citizens of God's holy nation are to relate to the socio-political authority of the world in which they live. 
It may be tempting for Christian believers, especially those in pagan societies, to construe their loyalty to Christ as a license for rebellion against ungodly authorities that govern them. In Peter's view, Christians must be subject to even pagan authorities, even those as ungodly as the Roman emperor, who at the time Peter wrote was probably Claudius or Nero. Not only must must Christians be subordinate to secular authority, but they must also do good, for by doing so they will silence slander against Christians, as is God's will. So I thought she did a great job summarizing that. Um, I want to move on to talk about um, Peter tells us to honor, he tells us to do good, to silence those who are saying things falsely against us, but he also tells us that there will be suffering, that suffering will come. In verses 18 to 20, he says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter is encouraging us and his readers to obey authority, whether it's good authority, whether it's kind authority, or whether it's oppressive authority. And he wants us to know that the suffering is not wasted. God does not ignore it. He does not know that it's not happening. And he does not, he is not able to turn it around and use it for his good. He is able to turn it around and use it for his good. And there are a lot of ex- examples through scripture. Uh, we don't always get with every single person's life a neat bow on knowing exactly how their suffering resulted. But God gives us a lot in scripture. If you think about going way back, um, even even to Joseph. Joseph was unjustly sold by his own family into slavery. He was unjustly put in prison for a crime that he did not commit. And yet through all of this, God works to form Joseph's character and to prepare him to be a leader in Egypt that he might rescue his family in time of a great famine. And so when the famine comes, the people of God, the people that God has chosen to bring his redemptive plan into the world, they're not forsaken. God uses Joseph's suffering to bring them to a place where they have safety and they have food and he establishes them for his purposes. And if you go on and look at Job, Job suffered unjustly at the hands of Satan. He lost all of his financial possessions. He lost most of his family with the exception of his wife. He lost his health. And yet at the end of all of that, when God restores him, this is what he says in Job 42 through 2 through 6. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted or stopped. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you, so he's saying, I had uttered some things, I didn't fully understand what they mean. I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And when he saw this glory, what was his response? Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So he says, my suffering wasn't wasted. I now see God in a way I would have never seen him before without that suffering. And I see myself and my sin and I repent. Daniel's another one. Daniel was a servant of God, and he was a political leader in a time where 
in a country that was very godless, ruled by a king that was consumed with himself. And Daniel's enemies hated him because he was righteous. And so they created a law that you couldn't pray to God. And Daniel openly prayed to God three times a day. And he gets convicted of this law and gets condemned to death. He gets condemned to death for praying to God. And yet God rescues him. And God just saves his life. And he uses Daniel's life to display his glory to all of those around Daniel, to the king. And then the king issues an edict declaring God's glory. And this was the most powerful kingdom at the time, declaring God's glory to all of those that he ruled. And so God is able to take our suffering, regardless of what it is, and he's able to turn it around and use it for his glory. Now, I do want to issue a word of caution with verses like 18 to 20, because it says, um, Peter says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And then he talks about suffering and being beaten and enduring suffering, even when you don't deserve it. We've got to be careful not to use these verses out of context. The Bible, the whole New Testament, the Old Testament, the Bible has a lot to say about the value of human life, about God's desire to protect and defend the helpless, about his desire to protect and care for the widow and the orphan, about his um, desire to pursue mercy and justice. And so we can't ignore those things and take a verse like this and use it as an excuse to exploit others. And this happened a lot in the 1800s, 1700s, when slavery was legal in the U.S. And so I've read a lot. I'm fascinated um, by uh, U.S. history in the 1800s, and I've read a lot of history. uh, I've read a lot of people's biographies in that time. And one figure who who continues to come up regularly, uh, regardless of its political leader, business leader, is Frederick Douglass. And after reading enough other about enough other people where he continued to come up, my curiosity was piqued. So I decided a couple months ago to read his autobiography, um, which I highly recommend. It's, it's, uh, it, there's some hard things in it, um, but it's, it's an ama- he wrote it in the 1840s, uh, and so this is before slavery has ended. And then he lived after that, and he spent a lot of his time working to end slavery, and then slavery was over. He spent a lot of his life working to promote the well-being of African Americans. So... This is a guy who was born into slavery in Maryland and um, eventually escapes to the north to become free and then becomes an advocate. And so reading his um, biography, he witnessed, he experienced and he witnessed so much horror and so much violence um, and so much brutality. And, and he says in his biography, he was in Maryland, and he says, you know, those in Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama had it much worse than him. There were many slaves who endured uh, many worse things than he had to deal with. But in reading some of the stuff, it will, it will just make your stomach churn. And so I was wondering through the book, I couldn't tell if he was a believer or not. And at the end, he kind of has an epilogue where he expounds on um, he expounds on being a Christian and slavery. And he's very, very condemning, and rightly so, to those who would use passages like this in the Bible to try to promote slavery or justify slavery. And he even says in his experience, uh, most of the time, because uh, he, he, was, he wasn't with uh, in like one spot the whole time. He was, you know, um, different parts of the family uh, were, would be his masters at different times, and he moved around. 
But so he had kind of a variety of experiences. And he said it was his experience that as, uh, whether it was a man or woman, as um, the slaveholder became more religious, the brutality and the oppression on him and his fellow slaves became worse. And so he uses, he's very condemning of those in power and the slaveholders at that time that would use, that would use passages out of the Bible to try to promote um, their own exploitation and completely ignore all the other truths about God. And it was really just helpful and refreshing to, to read and to remember that um, we have to take God's word in its full context. And so we can't ignore passages about um, hospitality and defending the helpless um, because we were all created in God's image and we all have value. And so Peter wants us to know the suffering won't be wasted, um, but it's also not an excuse to oppress somebody and tell them it's for their good because it won't be wasted. And you may say, well, how can Peter say that your suffering won't be wasted? How, how does, where does Peter get the authority to say God will use this for your good? And he's going he's gonna to appeal to Christ. Verses 21 to 24, he's going to appeal, appeal to Christ. This is what he says. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Remember, he's just talking about us being suffer, us suffering, even if it's unjust. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so it can be easy to think, to look at suffering, to look at oppression and think that um, it could be wasted. And really, since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and sin came into all of us, sin came into all humanity, there have been problems in the world. It began early with Cain and Abel. The next two people after Cain and Abel, I mean after Adam and Eve. Cain becomes jealous of Abel because Abel has the audacity to seek to please God. That is his crime. That's what he's committed. And so Cain decides this man has to die. And he kills his brother. And slavery and prostitution have been a problem for pretty much as long as humans have existed Children have often been exploited and they're often abandoned by their parents, more often than not their fathers, sometimes their mothers. But um, those who had disabilities throughout much of history have been cast aside and have been shunned. Immigrants have often been mistreated in in various societies. Um, One thing that that we don't talk about a lot um, is... uh, we talk a lot about, in, in I, at least I remember learning in school, a lot about um, slavery. We talk a lot about uh, World War II and things that happened to the Jews. Uh, we talked a lot about Native Americans and how they were displaced. But in the 1930s, there were over 400,000 Hispanic people that were sent back to Mexico unjustly. A lot of them were, uh, had, were here legally. A lot of them were citizens who had been born here and had never even been to Mexico but there were some immigration laws that were passed in the Great Depression to try to be protective of employment 
for uh, majority culture, and a lot of immigrants were just moved, over 400,000. It was actually more people were displaced than were displaced um, than all the Native Americans that were displaced through the 1800s. And so immigrants are often and have often in all societies been treated uh, poorly. Um, Sarah Parks, who used to go to our church uh, while she was in NC State, uh, grew up in Dubai. And I remember her, I asked her, I said, um, is there a problem with, you know, discrimination and racism in Dubai? And she said, oh, well, it's terrible. She said, um, if you're an Emirati, so if you're from somebody who's there, you know, you get treated much more preferentially than somebody like me, who is an immigrant. And she said, if you're an Indian, a lot of people from India move there for job opportunities. She said, they're just treated terrible. She said, if if, uh, if there was a, she gave me an example, if there's a wreck, and um, even if it was an Emirati's fault and an Indian was involved, the police would come and probably blame it on the Indian and write it up that way. She said if, if she were involved with a wreck with an Emirati, they would probably try to blame it on her. And if they, unless it was just egregious, um, you know, they probably would. But she said, yeah, it's just a, it's a, it's a problem. And so uh, things like that are helpful for me because I know it's a problem here in the U.S., but um, this is a systemic sin problem throughout all of the world and in, in, in all cultures. And so Peter says all of these things are happening. And as, as, as gut-wrenching as they are and as unjust as they are and as, and as angry as we can become, none of them is worse than the egregious act of Christ dying for our sins. God himself sending himself to earth. He was never defrauding of anyone. He never used his power to exploit or abuse others. He never was jealous and used that to embarrass someone else. He never stole from anyone. He was perfect, and the people he came to save rejected him and killed him, and it was for our sake that he died and rose from the dead to give us salvation. So as as um, hard as it can be to read about things that have happened in history, and as egregious as they are, none of them are worse than the cross. And God used the cross, he used that suffering, he used that unjust act to bring salvation for all of humanity. And so if God can use that, and he can use it for his perfect plan, of course he can use our suffering. It follows logically. It's like saying, if I can bench 400 pounds, which I can with one arm, if, if I can bench 400 pounds, then... Uh, don't ask me to do it, but I can just trust I can. If I can bench 400 pounds, then of course I can bench 10 pounds. If God can use the suffering of his own son unjustly, who is pure, perfectly innocent, perfectly pure, to bring salvation to all people, then of course he can use our suffering for his glory. And Peter is so passionate about this that he's going to remind us about it in chapter 3, verse 18. And then he's going to remind us about how the power of the gospel is what saves those who are spiritually dead in chapter 4. So he's going to repeat this theme throughout his book. And he wants to close by giving us hope that we have a good shepherd. So in verse 25 he says, For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he is the one who rescued us from eternal death. And not only did he rescue us, he rescued us to give us eternal joy. We will feast with him in glory for eternity, enjoying him with an increasing joy. And so he compares us to sheep, and we need to remember this, because sheep are not capable animals. They are animals who will wander into danger. They are animals that will fall off a cliff. They are animals 
that are so dumb, if they fall on their back and panic, they will kill themselves. These is not, he does not compare us to lions or wolves or bears or other things that are able to provide for and defend and care for themselves. He compares us to sheep and he is the good shepherd. He will take care of us. Edmund Clowney in his commentary on this verse says, the chief shepherd, and that's a reference to 1 Peter 5, 4, which we'll go through. The, the, the chief shepherd has majestic breadth and depth. It goes far beyond any care of an under shepherd or an elder. The Lord who knows the secrets of our hearts watches over our souls. So Jesus was the overseer of Peter's soul, warning him, calling him to watch and pray, praying for him that his faith should not fail and searching his heart in order to restore him to his calling. Peter knows this probably better than anyone because he has failed Christ and he has failed Christ in his greatest time of need and yet Christ comes back and he restores him and he says, I'm going to use you and these other 11-week disciples, I'm going to use you to build my church and transform the world. And so we may not always understand what the shepherd is doing, but it does not, it does not negate his care for us, our lack of understanding. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that it is not up to us. I thank you that we do not have to do better, that we do not have to try harder. I thank you, Lord, that even though we will fail, we will fail as leaders of this church. We will fail in loving our neighbors. We will fail in um, being kind to each other. We will fail in pursuing you and substituting things that are not of value for things that are of value. We will fail, Lord, but you will not fail. You have not failed. You will preserve us. Your word is faithful. It is true to the end, and you will use us to bring you glory. And so we rejoice in that, Lord, and we pray that we will be reminded of that. In your name, amen.